Welcome to the Tax Girl Podcast, your home for tax news, tax info, and tax policy. In each episode, I'll share conversations about taxes, money, and the choices we make. I'm your host, Kelly phillips Herb, Tax Girl. I'm a tax attorney, and I work with taxpayers and tax practitioners like you every day. There's a lot to talk about, so let's get started. If I said the words corporate culture to you, what kind of picture does that paint? We're hearing a lot about culture lately, especially as it relates to jobs. It can be a soundbite or a throwaway term, depending on who you're talking to. And I've been thinking about this a lot, especially as we grapple with the so-called great resignation. And I thought that it would be really useful to hear from someone who has made a name for himself in the corporate world. Jay Steinfeld founded and was the CEO of Global Custom Commerce, which operates the world's number one online window covering retailer, Blinds.com. Bootstrapped in 1996 for just $3,000 from his Bel Air, Texas garage, Global Custom Commerce was acquired by the Home Depot in 2014. Jay remained as the CEO and later joined the Home Depot online leadership team. After stepping away from these roles in early 2020, he has increased his involvement on numerous private company boards and serves as a director of the public company Masonite. He also teaches entrepreneurship at Rice University's Jones Graduate School of Business and supports numerous charities. Jay is an Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year and has earned a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Houston Technology Center. Thank you so much, Jay, for being on the show today. Kelly, thanks for having me. My pleasure. So I'm excited because I've not, I've had some folks in the technology section, um, a sector before, but I haven't had anyone who's built a retail business and then also had involvement with technology. So can you tell us a little bit about how you started your business? Sure. 1987, my wife and I had a little store called Laura's Draperies. Her name was, of course, Naomi. (laughs) Okay. We were shopping home decorators. And in 1993, I heard about something called the World Wide Web. And long story short, we experimented with it and built it into blinds.com and became the number one online retailer of blinds in the world. It wasn't so much a technology company or a retail company, although it certainly was both. We consider more of ourselves as a marketing company than a service company. So I'm really I'm fascinated by this idea, though, that you could go from being a small retailer. And actually, I grew up in a little town in North Carolina. We also had a curtain shop that everybody in town used. And it was our EMT actually ran it in part time. and She made lovely drapes. But you know what? As successful as she was in our little hometown, that never became Blinds.com. So how did that transition happen? Was it something where you became more successful over time and you slowly grew the business? Was there a moment where you thought, you know, the web is going to be the thing that transforms us? Like, how did that transition happen? One of the things you'll find with me is that very big on experiments. I call it experiment without fear of failure. And for the chance of evolving, you have to experiment. Mm -hmm. What this was, was just a marketing experiment. 
we were being pressured by mail order companies and by the big cop, big boxes, Home Depot, Lowe's. We were feeling that pressure and thought, well, I can't start a mail order company. I don't have the money to do that. I only have this $3,000. So what mm-hmm. am I going to do? Well, I'm just going to try going online. When we went online in 1993, it was the year before Amazon had even started. There was no broadband. People were afraid to buy anything online. They didn't even know you could buy online. And I had this idea that once I saw Amazon selling books online, that, well, maybe I can get people to buy blinds too. It should work because I'm getting people to measure it themselves, install it themselves. They can't see it. They can't touch it. They can't look at colors. Really, everybody thought it was a harebrained idea. And by the way, I had no idea what the internet was going to be. I had no vision as to what my company was going to be. I think for small business owners, you have to understand that there is a lot of ambiguity in almost any decision that you make. You can never have perfect information, and therefore, you just have to start. And you can start small by taking a step, which is exactly what I did. It was one small step. and. Each day, I just built it slowly but surely, which was great back then because nobody thought it was a good idea. Nobody thought you could buy blinds online. And that gave me some coverage. That gave me some time. It was really part of the luck that I had that I was able to start at a time when people didn't believe in, the, in what the internet was going to be. And at some, at some point, I made an acquisition. I made another acquisition. I took in some money to grow. And the next thing I knew, we were doing over $100 million, and then Home Depot comes along and buys us. It, it was quite startling. I'm sure. And so what was it about then that made you think that uh, you could do this and it wouldn't be the end of the world? Because I do think that that's kind of the other thing that business owners, when you start a business, and I, and I own a business, I completely understand this. Like, Obviously, everybody wants to be successful. Not everybody is successful, but there are different levels of success. And there's also different levels of failure. And one of the things that I think does scare some small businesses is this idea of failure. So like if you only lose $3,000, maybe that was your threshold of pain. But what if it's worse than that? So was there ever a moment when you're like, okay, this doesn't seem like it's working out or people don't think that it's going to work out? but I'm going to keep doing it anyway. Like when that moment happened, what kept you going? Well, when I first started, I looked at the asymmetric risk, which was the downside risk being very small, Mm $3,000. And the upside risk or the the upside opportunity, I had no idea what that could be. It was really unlimited as far as I could tell. Not that I thought that I was going to be doing $100 million or a lot more now. It was just that I didn't know. And it was kind of tantalizing and compelling to just try something. And really, it was not about grit or resilience. It was about just making that experiment. And that's what I understood later on in retrospect, when I understand what my values were, what my core values were, which was about evolving and experimenting and expressing myself and having fun. Mm -hmm. That's just who I am. And that's what I did. That's what I'm doing right now when I'm writing a book and doing this podcast. It's fun. I'm evolving. I'm expressing myself. And that's what I do. It wasn't so clear back then. It was just a step. Is there anything you wish you had known then before you started the business? I mean, obviously, it was a risk, right? But was there something you wish you had known? Well, there's a lot of things I I wish I had known. But 
in retrospect, it's kind of good that I didn't know how hard it was going to be because by knowing how hard it is, it might prevent you from, from even starting. I was naive. I didn't really know much of anything. Mm-hmm. So that allowed me to pursue something much more daunting to others who were smarter and more seasoned. I had no bad habits because I hadn't done anything yet. Right. So I was able to learn along the way. I read a lot. I looked at other people for best practices. And I guess if I had to say, if there's anything I wish I had known early, it was probably the importance of relying on other people. I did so much myself as a small business owner that it wasn't until I realized that it wasn't so much about making myself better, but about improving everybody around me and helping other people become the best that they could be and learning how to develop teams and how to hire people and being introspective about what my own weaknesses are and then hiring for those rather than trying to bang my head against the wall and get better at something that I would never get better at. That's, I wish I knew that earlier, because it wasn't until that happened that the business took off. Which is really interesting when you talk about hiring, because I do think that's something that especially small businesses struggle with, this idea of taking on another person. And it's not always hiring like a full-time employee. Sometimes it's hiring your team. I talk about your team a lot on this show, but the idea that you should have a tax person, you should have a good accountant, you should have a good lawyer. People, um, especially when you maybe feel financially strapped or if you feel financially responsible for other people that you've already hired, you can be reluctant to want to continue to hire. So was there something that, you know, you thought to yourself, okay, I'll hire this person. If it doesn't work out, I can let them go. Or was it the sense of responsibility? When you were hiring, how did you make the decisions to hire not only who you hired, but to continue to hire? especially if you were doing it all yourself, because I'm a bit of a control freak and I understand that sometimes it's hard to let go. So how did you learn to let go? I learned to let go because I had to let go. It was in, inherent motivation. You know, some people are, are motivated by extrinsic motivation or intrinsic motivation. There's also something called inherent motivation where the circumstances just dictate you must do that. Well, I had to do it because I would never have been as good as I needed to be. An example is technology. I am a tech founder, but I am not technically proficient. People think that you have to be a really good technology person in order to be in tech. Well, it helps, and it helps to have a knowledge of it, of course, but I needed to hire somebody, and when I hired that person, wow, I was able to build the technology that I always needed, and it was always the bane of my existence, technology. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty good at marketing, but I wasn't good enough. I didn't understand the tools that were needed and the analytics that were needed. When I hired somebody, wow, our marketing took off. It just, through experience, you just had to realize and be self-reflective to know, you know, you're never going to be as good as you need to be at this. You right. have to hire somebody. And it seems like, you know, you, you made these decisions over time which helped you grow your business. But then when you sold your business, did that change? Was it difficult maybe not always being the boss or were you able still to make those decisions? How did that change once you sold the business to Home Depot? Well, that, that's a really interesting question. When I left the company, I asked the, the CFO of Home Depot, 
So how long did you think I was going to stay? And she told me, well, we thought you were going to hate us after 90 days and quit. <laughs> I stayed seven years. Right. Here's, here's what, what actually happened as I thought about it in retrospect. When I first launched Blinds.com very early, I did take some money, a half a million dollars. It was a seed round. And at that time, I'm already, I have stockholders. I had a board. Yes, I had majority stake, but because I was now, I had fiduciary responsibilities to other people and not just to my own employees. I had to speak to other people. I had to manage up and across as well as down. As I got bigger and bigger, I took on additional institutional capital. Again, I had stockholders, investors, and I had a real legitimate board. At this point now, I didn't even have majority control of the company. I had effective control because they needed me. Mm -hmm. So when I sold to Home Depot, I'd already had plenty of experience, 10, 15 years of experience not having control of the company. So, it, and they gave me so much money, of course I was going to be okay with it. Right, right. Because how did I stay after having this fair amount of autonomy? And then here I am within this mammoth $120 billion company with 450,000 employees. And I had at the time 175. We now mm -hmm. have only 500 employees. Well, it was because of the culture was pretty close. I mean, we definitely cared about people. But at Blinds.com, we focused on customer intimacy first. And operational excellence, efficiency was what Home Depot is. It's kind of like a love language. I don't know, are you familiar with the uh, Gary Chapman's book, The Five Love Languages? No, I'm not. Well, it's where you have your own definition of love. And somebody else has their definition of love. And if you think your definition is the same as that other person, then you're going to have conflict. Mm -hmm. Know the other person's love language. Well, in business, there are different types of love languages as well. I'm not going to go into what they are, but ours was customer intimacy. Home Depot's was organizational efficiency. I understood their love language of business. They understood out mine. And we maintained a certain amount of autonomy. But we did integrate where it made sense. We're in some technology, in security, in HR, in finance. But in the way we operated our business, they gave us almost complete control. And therefore, all the things that made us what we are, we were able to do. And I give Home Depot a lot of credit for allowing me and the company to maintain that, that personality, the secret sauce ingredients that we were able to use. And when you talk about personality, I have to ask, because I'm sure my listeners are wondering, when you go through a moment like you had, where you realize that you are successful, and I understand that people interpret success in different ways, but you know, you're financially very successful, does that change who you are? Do you feel like there was a moment where you're like, I'm a different person now because maybe I think about things differently? Or... Was there that moment where things changed for you? And was that, and I guess it's kind of a two-part question, was that moment related to the sale or did it happen earlier? Because there, I mean, I can tell you from running my business, you always have a moment where you're like, wow, you know, last year we had a really good year or you build, you have milestones. So obviously you had a lot of pretty impressive milestones. You were making a hundred million, the company was making a hundred million a year. You sold to Home Depot. 
was there a moment that you would consider like a significant milestone and did that change you? Okay. First, let's define success. Yes. I think that's really important. For me, success is not attaining a goal. I mean, yes, that is successful. Selling the company, that's success. No question about it. But my definition of success is being in the process of getting better. My definition of success is not only being in the process of myself getting better, but improving everyone and everything around me. Mm -hmm. When you have that type of more philosophical definition of success, you can be successful every day. In fact, you can be successful multiple times during the day. And if you are aware and present in that, then you can celebrate success multiple times during the day. You can acknowledge to yourself, oh, that meeting went really well. The mm-hmm. way I presented that, that was great. That's success. Oh, the way I helped that employee mitigate some type of weakness, that's success. The way our department came together and did something, success. So we were all thinking about our own success and helping each other become better. And as a result, we had almost this autonomous excellence. It was happening automatically because we were so focused on our definition of being in the process of being successful. So yes, there were certainly times where we made an acquisition or we took in the investment capital. Those were all markers of success, no doubt. But I believe I was successful long before we sold to Home Depot. And when you would have those moments where you're saying that you felt successful because you helped someone with a problem or you had a really good meeting and you acknowledged that success, which I do think is really important. I think sometimes it's very easy to become overwhelmed and only focus on the things that go wrong, right? And not uh, focus on the success. Did you feel that that was changing you? Like, was it hard to look back at what had happened five years ago or 10 years ago? Or do you feel like it wasn't anything that really changed you? Because as you mentioned, your definition of success wasn't marked by defined milestones. I guess my question is when you when you think about, you know, one of the things that you think about, and I've talked to a few people who've been successful business owners on the program, and there comes a time when people regard you differently. And I guess my question is, did you have a moment when you felt like people were regarding you differently? Or was there a moment when you looked at yourself differently as you became more successful, understanding that you had lots of moments of success along the way, but there had to be a point like when you sold, for example, when you sold the company, when, you know, maybe the people in your church or neighborhood thought differently of you because there are outward signs of success that people look at. So did you ever have a moment where you felt like, or a title, you know, changing your title can make you think differently about success. Did you have a moment when you felt like other people regarded you differently or that you thought of yourself differently? There were a lot of those types of moments. I remember walking through my office, through the building, and seeing people there in a meeting that I couldn't recall any of their names. In fact, I saw people there that I don't believe I'd ever seen before. And I was thinking, wow, this has really become a lot bigger than what I recall. I used to know everybody's names. I used to know their spouse's name. I used to know if they had children. And here are people that might have been at the company for more than a year, and I don't even remember seeing them. 
that was kind of a shock to me. And it was a marker for we've gotten big. I guess we're successful. Mm -hmm. I didn't feel that I had changed much, but I think I'd have to be a little naive to think I haven't changed. It does for me seem a little strange and a little awkward with this when I talk to my employees and, and ask them for input and they're afraid to talk to me. Right. Because of my, my position. It's inherent in the position. People are afraid to talk to their bosses about, about anything sometimes. I know some people in the company would talk to somebody else who had a better relationship with me. Here, you tell Jay about this. You tell him. <laughs> I, I'm afraid to talk to him about it. And there were always certain people like that that everybody would go to to make their opinion known, despite the fact that I'm a person who wants to hear from everybody. I really do. And it was very frustrating for me because inherently people say he's successful. He must know everything. I'm afraid he's intimidating. I didn't like that aspect of, of that. But as far as whether I've changed, I don't know. It's, isn't that kind of hard for people to know whether they have changed or not? It's probably a better question to ask my kids right. or my wife or friends. You know, does he think he's all that now? Has he changed? <laughs> When you were talking about um, the, the fact that people might have been scared to talk to you, I think a lot of that's inherent in business because of, you know, we've all had a boss that was really scary, I think. And I think the tendency is to associate leadership with those scary moments. And, I, you know, I'm not saying that's fair because I don't think it is. And I don't think it's good for a company. But some people run their companies that way. They like that whole top-down approach. Do you think that that really sometimes disassociated culture has contributed to the great resignation. Do you think that people are maybe thinking about where they work and how they work differently because of their employers? Because I know we, you know, the, the, the focus in the news has really been on, you know, it's money, it's remote work, like these very tangible pieces. But I have to wonder if, you know, if all things are equal, if it's not just about the money, why would you go? And I do think a lot of it, when you listen to people talk, they tend to mention things that I associate with corporate culture. And one of them I do think is management. Do you see that as a factor? And if so, do you have advice for companies as to how they can be maybe either have management be more approachable or how they can approach their employees a different way? I absolutely do. I've been thinking about this topic a lot, as I'm sure most people are, because it, it's hard to hire. People are leaving the great resignation. What is causing all this? Well, people are just naturally anxious because of the pandemic. They're anxious about politics. They're just anxious about a lot of things. So they're already primed to be looking for something better. Mm -hmm. The things that they're, they're looking for are not so much more money. Yes, we want more money. We all want more money. But people want autonomy. And isn't that what they really want? The ability to choose where they work, not be told what to do. That doesn't mean that you don't have objectives that must be met. It doesn't mean there aren't metrics that have to be measured. Right. But people want to be able to control their destinies more. And as a company, these are things that have always been present, but very few have done. Why not give more generosity to your employees? And generosity is not necessarily about money, but it's about freedom, freedom to be involved in, in decisions, mm -hmm. upward mobility, traction for their careers. 
Do you talk to your employees directly and candidly about what they want in their lives, what they want in their careers? Are you providing them with the training to be able to achieve those objectives? Because if you are, they're more likely to stay with you, even if they're pursuing something outside of your company, ultimately. You're better off to have them there, know that's what their job is, and they'll stay longer as opposed to trying to find that someplace else. It's no longer about command and control. It's about providing personal upside, personal satisfaction, about generosity, about respect. You must respect people and give them voice and do everything that you can so that they can then work the way they want to. Like It's like customers. You can't force somebody to walk into your store. You can't force them to buy online. Customers are going to shop the way they want to. And if you try to push somebody one way or the other, that's not going to work. And the same thing is with employees now. They know they can go someplace else. They've got that flexibility. And they're looking for not only that autonomy, but they're also looking for purpose and a culture that they can respect. What is that higher purpose? Why am I working here? What are we trying to achieve as a company? This is nothing new. It's something that we always thought of at, at Blinds.com. We were always about putting people ahead and helping them become the best that they could be. And if you as an employer do not have a compelling vision, then it can't now be just about putting them on the right seat on the bus. You better have a darn good bus with a compelling destination with good seats, plenty of visibility, plenty of gas, and it better go fast or people are going to get bored and they're going to go off and find another bus someplace else. I completely agree with you. And I'm fascinated by this because I don't think this is the discussion that people are actually having in their boardrooms, though. I don't know if you saw, but the Wall Street Journal did a piece on like what companies are doing to either woo or keep employees. And one of the things that they're suggesting is trophy offices. This idea that if you have a really lovely aesthetic or if you offer some perks, I think they mentioned like fire pits were one of the perks. That's what people need to stay. And I think it's really interesting because we really have been, at least the discussions that I've been hearing and the things that have been making headlines, ways that folks are retaining talent and attracting new talent have really focused on either pay or these perks, right? Like a fire pit. And I had actually tweeted a few days ago that I don't believe that the fire pit is what makes you stay. And it's interesting to hear you say this because I don't hear words like autonomy and respect and basically being part of a team, which is what you've been talking about. I don't hear those conversations. Do you think that's a miss for companies to not be talking about those things more? Huge miss. It's always been the primary driver of our success. How could we, with just 100 people, beat Amazon and Home Depot and Lowe's? How were we able to build things that people believed were impossible to build? It was because we were focused on doing the impossible. And you only do that by having a culture of experimentation and wanting to be the best that we can be. Yes. If you want to do things of consequence, if you want to build consequential things, I think you must first help people become consequential. 
I agree with you completely. But again, I don't think that we're hearing that enough. So now that you are not necessarily running the company every day like you used to, what are you doing these days? Well, I'm not retired. I'm rewired. Okay. So I'm doing all sorts of things. I I just wrote a book, which is coming out in a few weeks, called Lead from the Core, The Four Principles for Profit and Prosperity. That's another example of evolving and experimenting and expressing myself for sure. And it's been fun. And so far, the reviews have been awesome. And it's, it's, been, it's been pretty cool to see the reaction because it, it deals with these types of themes about bringing humanity back into business, about bringing humanity back into people's lives, about respecting people, again, not commanding control. And it's the whole journey from when I started and with just an idea as a tiny startup all the way the whole arc up through Home Depot and, and to where I am now. That's been fun. I'm teaching at Rice, the business school. I'm on a bunch of boards. And I've got five kids and seven grandkids. I call the seven grandkids my seven startups. Oh, that keeps you busy. <laughs> and we will definitely put the link to the book in the show notes. But one of the things I'm interested in is this book for employees? Is it for serial entrepreneurs like yourself? Is it for business owners? So who's kind of your target audience? The primary target are entrepreneurs. Okay. That was, that's what, who I, well, I originally wrote it because I knew I was going to be stepping away from my company and all the things that we did, all the things that I've been talking about and a lot more are in the book so that my employees knew what brought us to where we are and what I believe needed to stay as we moved into the future. That was what started it all because I was afraid of what would happen once I left. Once I started teaching and realized that, wow, all these things that I'm talking about can apply to other entrepreneurs, then I started broadening it to all the things that I thought would help them. And then it was about executives who were just basically bored or felt stagnant or felt like their businesses were about to be disrupted. And they wanted to be the disruptor, not the disruptee. And this is about how you can take not just your business, but yourself and, 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 become better in ways that you didn't even know and give you the inspiration and the tools and the tactics and the strategies for doing that. And then finally, it's gotten into this whole idea of just people wanting to get better, whether you're in business or not. If you want to paint your stairs and you're afraid to do it, how do you experiment without fear of failure? How do you get a little better at it? People are afraid of making mistakes and you're just not going to have that enjoyable as life as you could without expanding yourself, getting out of your comfort zone. And this book is really helping people do that. And finally, this is, I mean, all these things sound very positive. There's one other thing that we haven't talked on, and I know you don't know about this yet, but when I first went into business, a year afterwards, after being married to Naomi for 25 plus years, she died of cancer. Oh my goodness. I'm so sorry. And then I had to decide what makes me tick. How will I ever be happy again? Mm -hmm. And that's how I started getting into all these introspective ideas about motivation and happiness and success. And before that, well, I, I was CPA. What do I know about that? That stuff was a bunch of BS. Mm -hmm. Core values, purpose, mission, all this soft, squishy ideals that are put up on some board in the HR department meant nothing to me. 
But that was a wake-up call. And that's what caused me to think that there is more to business than just making money and metrics and achieving that type of success. It was then up to me to propel myself through that. And people who have experienced death or experienced trauma are using some of the lessons in this book to help them get through that, through the idea of, well, yeah, it was bad. I was sad. I'm still sad. In almost 20 years, I'm still very sad. And yet I'm also happy. And it's the paradox of these things. And there's a whole chapter on paradox about being, if I don't look at my, my life as half empty or half full. I think it's half empty and half full. And I relish and am certainly grateful for all the great things. But I am still very, very sad about my wife's death. And, and all the, the angst that my children went through at that time. And the book has helped them do that. This message is making me feel more consequential. And that's a great feeling to be able to do something and to influence people who you don't even meet. It's, it's leverage that I could never do on my own. Well, I'm totally sold on the book now. <laughs> So um, I do hope that our uh, listeners go out and pick it up. I do think, again, largely this conversation is just not one that a lot of people are having. And people who know me know that I'm all about, you know, trying to find the good in things as well. I think it's really important. I think that one of the things you said about, you know, you having moments that in your life that do make you sad or sometimes maybe make you angry as well. I think it does have a lot of impact on you, but you, you know, how you react to it and what you learn from it really does, I think, help you figure out who you are and uh, what you want to do. So what you want to do with your life. So thank you so much for sharing today and um, for also talking about your book. And again, I will put those links in the show notes. If folks wanted to find you and you wanted to be found either on social media or in the on the web, where would you send them? Well, LinkedIn is certainly a good place, and I post regularly there about all these types of philosophical ideas. But I also have a website, jsteinfeld.com, that has a lot of this information as well, and you can download the first chapter of the book for free at jsteinfeld.com. Perfect. Thank you so much for being here today. I appreciate it. Kelly, thank you so much for having me. It's been fun. I'd love to know what you thought of this episode. You can send an email with your feedback to podcast at taxgirl.com. And if you liked it, please share. You can find the audio of each episode at taxgirl.com. You can also subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite listening app so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening because paying taxes is painful, but hearing about them shouldn't have to be.